Well, hello and welcome to the Christchurch Lifelines podcast, where we will be continuing the conversation started in our recent series on mental health. In these four episodes, we will further explore the realities of mental health struggle and its intersection with faith. Join myself, Aaron Foster, and Christchurch pastor Tara Beth Leach as we sit with guests and professionals to learn how to seek hope in such a frenzied world. Each episode will also feature an intentional spiritual discipline led by Pastor Eric Haskins, designed to help us live into healthy rhythms of prayer and scripture to find hope and peace amidst our struggle. We are so excited for you to join us as we continue the conversation of seeking lifelines for our mental health. Well, Pastor Terabeth could not join us for today's conversation, but blessing in disguise, I am so excited to have Sue Ann Camfield co-hosting with me today. We are joined by our guest, Dr. Tom Nutter, a psychiatrist who serves as the Chief of Mental Health Service at Edward Hines Jr. VA Hospital. Tom, his wife Sharon, and their three daughters are all active in the life of Christchurch, and Tom has been such a great resource for our team through the planning process of our Lifeline series. We are excited to hear from Tom on some of his experience in the mental health field, his thoughts on some of the stigmas of therapy and medication in the church, and how his faith influences his work and passion for helping people find hope in their darkness. So without further ado, let's jump into the conversation with Dr. Tom Nutter. Well, welcome to the Lifelines Continuing the Conversation podcast. Today, we are blessed to be joined with Sue Ann Campfield, Christchurch's very own uh, Director of Engagement and Women's Ministry. Hi, Sue Ann. Hi, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, thanks for being with us. And we are even more blessed, no offense, Sue Ann, to be with Dr. Tom Nutter. Um, He is a, like the intro said, a member of our congregation who's been, he and his wife and his family have been um, intimately involved in in what we're doing here at Christchurch. And we're just blessed to, to have you with us, Tom. Hello. Hello. It's great to be here. And I do think Sue Ann should be offended that you said it was more valuable to have me <laughs> she here than have her. Be. She should be. And that's my fault. Um, do you forgive me, Sue Ann? Uh, I, I humbly apologize. Wow. And we're on air. So yeah, I kind of... Um, we can't, and I we can't edit this out. Because I work for a church. So yes, I, I forgive you. That doesn't sound like you want to forgive me though. <laughs> but maybe this conversation will, will help. Yeah, we're, we're so excited to have you, Tom. Um, also, for those of you listening in, Tom just told us a story of a time that he had to give a 45-minute talk, and it took four hours for him to, to get through it, just because he has so much wisdom to share. So so uh, buckle in, folks. It, it, it's going to be a good a good episode today. But but no, Tom, we are just so excited. Um, Tom, you are a, a psychiatrist. Um, we would love to hear a little bit about what what is what is your role look like? What what do you do? Let's hear a little bit more about, about that, that work um, that you do. So a few things. First of all, again, the talk was four hours because it took me four hours to give 45 minutes worth of, uh, <laughs> worth of material. Uh, but thank you for giving me the benefit of the doubt. Um, so, and thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me to be here. It's such a privilege. It's such a wonderful thing what uh, Christchurch is doing, doing in this whole Lifeline series. Uh, I think it's the first time in, in the, all the years I've been in church that any kind of series like that has been attempted mm. and let alone done, done so well and so thoughtfully. And so on, on behalf of you know, all the folks that I've seen over the years uh, in, in my practice, I just uh, thank you for that. And thank you for the work that both of you do every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I'm just very grateful to be here. Mm. I also have to give a quick disclaimer, since uh, my job, uh, technically I'm um, Chief of Mental Health at Heinz, uh, Edward Hines Jr. VA Hospital, uh, right up the street here, which is the best system of mental health care that almost no one's ever heard of, but that's a topic <laughs> for another day and another podcast. Uh, but the reason I bring it up is that since I am a federal employee, I need to make very, make very clear that I'm not speaking on behalf of the federal government, I'm not speaking on behalf of the VA, uh, that I'm, I'm not on the clock right now, so no tax dollars are going for this. Um, but so this is, this is all from Tom Nutter, who is a Christian and a psychiatrist and uh, uh, you know, child of God and hopefully uh, someone who follows Jesus. Mm. So, Love it. Um, Thank you. So uh, I've been now um, in, um, in the field, like, it's hard to believe this, and you'll appreciate this later as you get older. Uh, <laughs> it's, been, it's been 21 years that I've been out of residency. Wow. I, uh, when I came out of residency, I worked in a practice in Wheaton. Uh, so I saw, certainly saw a lot of, uh, you know, of how the Christian culture interacts well and, and not so well uh, when mm-hmm. I was in practice out there, and that was 2000, 2006, and uh, then I was at Loyola for three years, and now I've been at Heinz for the last 13, and have been, uh, had the privilege, and sometimes the, sometimes it's not a privilege, but most of the time it's a privilege to be, to be chief there for the last uh, just over six. 
That's amazing. So you've seen you've seen a lot. You've had a lot of experience over the years. Um, what was what was it that drew you to to this line of work? What was it? Was was there something in in your upbringing that that you your heart broke for for folks who were who were struggling in this way? What was it? Yeah, that that brought you into to wanting to do this. Well, I think when you're in medical school, when your last name is Nutter, you have to at least <laughs> consider it. Um, and uh, you know, the funniest thing when you I've had. Um, patients who are from England, and you know, the way that we say someone's nuts, the, the equivalent expression in the UK is that person's a nutter. And so uh, I had to at least consider it for that reason. But I, you know, I've always um, just really appreciated people's stories. Uh, yeah. And not the, not the stories you hear when you first meet people, you know, where you work, you know, where you live, that kind of stuff, but the kind of the story behind the story. And mm. I know this sounds uh, kind of cheesy, and psychiatrists really don't like to say cheesy things because uh, it, it seems professionally unbecoming somehow. I don't know. Uh, but I've always been, the, the phrase that always kind of captures it for me is I really like being at the corner of hope and, mm. and despair. Like, you mm. know, when, you know, it's a really sacred moment to be able to be present with someone who's struggling with something difficult and to be able to uh, offer offer your presence, to be able to offer hope and uh uh, hopefully, to be able to offer uh, uh, treatments that are that are effective, which we're which we're able to do, and uh, it's a very rewarding thing in that respect. Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, I I love that. Um, you said meet people at the corner of hope and despair. Is that did I yes capture that right? That, yes, that's a that's a beautiful picture. Um, I think a lot of the time, yeah, folks are folks are going in um, in in despair, and they may be surprised by the hope even. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're in those in those situations, what has been um, I don't know maybe most rewarding or and and maybe this is just me asking you to expound on on that intersection of hope and despair. But what's been the most rewarding piece of of finding people in that in that space for you? Um, I just I, one of the things I've I've liked doing and uh, and I I've enjoyed outpatient practice probably more than inpatient practice, and that's got its own rewards. But to be able to see people over time uh, who are Struggling with you know various things with depression with anxiety with um, uh, you know panic attacks all sorts of things mm-hmm. substance abuse and to see um, the ups and downs to be able to walk with with folks through that and to watch watch people get better it's a really mm. it's a it's a it's a really it's a fun thing to be, to watch people get better and uh, I've gotten to do that and to see that a lot over the years and uh, it doesn't get old that yeah. never gets old yeah that's really cool yeah. Our, Sorry. No, I was just going to say, what a unique calling that is, because not everybody can sit with people in places of pain and consider that a joy and mm. a privilege and recognize those sacred spaces that people are when they come to you and they're broken and they're hurting and they're looking to you. I mean, what a beautiful place you started out saying, you know, you're doing this because you're a follower of Christ. And that's also the privilege that we get to have this conversation. In. And I just think that's a that's a really special place and a unique calling that you have. Yeah. To some degree, it's a, a unique calling that all of us have, but I uh, and, mm. it, and it certainly I uh, don't want to pretend that uh, um, that it doesn't have its moments that it wears you down or that we, it doesn't require lots and lots of sure. replenishment, much like the work that, that sure. the two of you do. But yeah, um, no. and I think I'm I'm um, kind of coming off our, our first episode um, in the conversation that we had with Amy Simpson that that ended, and I looked back over that conversation. I was just so hopeful about the the you know the state of um, mental health and mental illness. Whereas I think a lot of the times when we, we initially have these conversations, um, we lean, or maybe I won't say we, but I'll speak for myself. I lean towards the despair side, like, oh, it's so widespread. It's, it's affecting so many people. It's really hard to, to figure out how to move forward in it. Um, but hearing from Amy last week and and now hearing even just the beginning of, of this conversation, there is just so much hope abounding in this, um, and I think that's really important to name, and even just for myself, and if anybody listening takes takes um, something from that as well, I, I just think it's so powerful to to yeah. see and, and experience the level of hope that that um, people who are um, intimately involved with with this, um, yeah, with with mental yeah. health and mental illness are, are experiencing a, a deep level of hope in this, sure. which is great. Yeah, sure. yeah, thanks. Yeah, in in kind of on that. Um, what have been some of the the trends, the widespread trends in terms of mental illness, mental health um, awareness, or um, or uh, you know prevention or or treatment? What what any notable trends or or um, movements that you've seen over the years in your experience um, in psychiatry? 
Well, doctors like to frame conversations in terms of here's the good news and here's the bad news. <laughs> and so I guess I could, I, I could say it in that way. Um, one statistic that I think gets presented a lot is that um, uh, almost, half of, uh, almost half of us over the course of our lives will have a diagnosable psychiatric condition. Mm -hmm. And even that statistic, which uh, thankfully Tara Beth used in her message, I think, uh, last week or the week before, um, may even be a little dated. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, as, and it almost certainly has not gone down wow. since those, uh, since those studies were done. And, um, you know, with loneliness being epidemic, even before the pandemic yeah. and, uh, lots of other factors at play there, there have been some, uh, there's some areas of bad news. That's for sure. I mean, since the pandemic, uh, suicidal ideation has increased, uh, depressive symptoms have increased. The number of people, uh, presenting with, with depression and with anxiety has of course increased. Sadly, uh, the, um, Increase in in deaths by uh, by drug overdose have mm. have fairly dramatically increased over over the course of the pandemic. It's something like thirty percent since the wow. start of the pandemic. Um, and so there are some there are some disconcerting trends. Yeah. On the other hand, first of all, as a psychiatrist, I'm very excited about uh, certain developments in the field, which is again a topic for another podcast <laughs> on another day. Uh, but just in terms of how mental illness is perceived. Uh, in the community and within the Christian community, there is a dramatic difference between now and when I, uh, when I was first a psychiatrist. Mm. When I was a resident, um, there's a particular talk I've, I've given on obsessive compulsive disorder that I gave as a resident, that I gave early as an attending, and that I gave for years um, uh, as faculty at Loyola to the, to the residents. And when I first gave this talk, uh, at that time there was a brand new paper that had just been published about how the average person with OCD had suffered with their symptoms for 10 years before they told anyone wow. uh, and 17 years before they received appropriate treatment for it. Mm. Wow. And within, you know, just fast forwarding 10 or 15 years, now the, the expression, I'm OCD about whatever is used so commonly that people who actually have OCD right. have to explain, no, I actually have OCD. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just one example of of many, and you know, in so many ways, um, psychiatric conditions are so much less destigmatized than they than they were in the past. And you know, I remember as a as a medical student reading an article from a prominent Christian author um, explaining the sin of anxiety, hmm. and just seeing that hmm. I'm I'm rarely a person then and now rarely a person who gets angry enough to you know I'm going to write a letter to right. uh, and this was one where I um, and I vividly remember uh, and you you wouldn't I don't think you could get something like that published in any mainstream publication now wow. within, yeah. the, within you, the church. Do you think that's a combination of of people just being more open about it? And people talking about it differently. Uh, what what do you attribute those statistics moving in a good direction to? I think that you you can point to a lot of things that have been done. You know, in terms of um, um, uh, public service announcements and um, you know movies and people who've you know kind of made um, made public their struggles um, over the years. But I really do think the thing that makes the most difference is um, just knowing people. Mm. And we all know people. We know lots of people, um, and we know more people than we realize that we know uh, who have um, mental illnesses. It, it's kind of a unique, um, uh, a unique perspective that you get in in church being a being a mental health professional because so many people take you aside and oh, I've got, I've got uh, could I just talk to you for a minute about, mm -hmm. you know, so-and-so, my, my cousin or my, yeah. my daughter or my uncle or, you know, and um, uh, I feel like, I think it was, um, I think I read this in one of Henry Nouwen's books. Nouwen was a, a psychologist um, and a, a priest and well-known well author. I think he wrote 40 books, something like that. Yeah. And in one of them, he talks about hearing confession. And mm. just wishing other people in his congregation could hear others' confessions wow. so that they would know how not alone they are wow. and how commonly those things are. And I think you do get that kind of a perspective as a mental health professional in church that you wouldn't have just going to church where everybody sort of goes and you know puts on their Sunday best, so to speak. Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, I think in, in just a continued theme from from this entire series and especially from the last, last week's um episode. And if you haven't caught on, 
we'd love for you to go listen to that if you haven't listened to it yet. Um, just a great conversation with Amy Simpson. But that that, that idea of sharing with other people um, what you're going through is a huge step. And it's not always an easy step, but it's it's helpful to know um, for for yourself, but also to others that, that we aren't doing this alone. No matter what we're going through, um, there is going to be somebody that, that will sit with you through it, that, that will, um, that have, has experienced something similar, um, that you aren't the only one, um, you have, you have people around you. Um, and so that, that's really, um, yeah, a powerful, powerful thought there. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit more. I know the pandemic gets the most news for, um, you know, why everything is is kind of um, becoming more and more prevalent right now. And the statistics that you shared are are really, um, really stunning um, and, and sad to hear since, you know, two years ago, the amount of, um, you know, of that brokenness that has has increased. What are some of the sure. other um, the other the other um, reasons or or. Um, yeah, I think the factors that are kind of playing into some of the the inflating um, statistics to that end. You know, I wish I could, I could speak to that in a, in a sure. way that was confident. Mm. Um, I feel like, you know, we can identify trends and say that, you know, something is more prevalent in 2018 compared to what it was sure. when we studied it in 2005, that sort of thing. And I don't know that the the reasons are always as clear. We have, we always have lots of theories about the reasons mm. and, you know, isolation and, you know, it's, we can blame social media for all kinds of things. Um, uh, good things and bad things. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of that is, you know, it's really hard to know. Yeah. But what, what isn't hard to know is that the, uh, that they're not going away. And, mm. um, you know, just about any psychiatric condition I can think of is becoming more common rather than less. Yeah, yeah. And that's been that's been the case probably over the entire time that I've been uh, I've been a psychiatrist. Mm. Yeah, and and one of the you, you said it might not it might not be easy to know what those reasons are specifically, but it's also what I'm hearing from you um, that it is easy to see time and time again the hope and the repair um, that you're watching God do in people um, in and through through the work that you're doing and and you know adjacent to to your work. Um, so what what are some of those things? And, and you've shared even a little bit already, but what are some of the things that that continue to get you excited about God's work amidst um, people's struggle? Uh, I, I I would point back to what what we're doing here and what mm. what Christchurch is doing in this whole Lifeline series. Uh, as I said, I think this is the first time I've been part of a church or known of a church who is, that, that is doing something like this. And you know, it's an exciting thing to think about the church. And I think Tara Beth said this in one of her messages in in the last couple of weeks. You know, really being a hospital for the broken. Mm. And uh, that's that's part of what we're called to do. It's not all that the church is, but it is it is part of what we're what we're supposed to be about. And you know, it's always struck me as such an irony that to be a Christian is to, on the front end, admit that you're messed up. Yeah, I mean that's that's really the, that's the ticket to get in. It's at some level, it's the you know all have sinned and fallen short. All you know, uh, all of us are messed up beyond repair, needing mm-hmm. rescue, not just. Um, you know, not just a little rehab, uh, and yet we go to church, and this is really across across cultures, across lots of different churches, and we kind of put on our put on our best, put on our best veneer of everything's okay, and you know, there's you can look at that sort of cynically and 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 call that hypocrisy. I mean, of course, we're all you know yeah. that's really kind of what we all are. Right. But on but looking at it in a in a different way. It's um, it's just really sad mm. uh, because we're all you know separately you know kind of suffering alone. Yeah, you, know, you have lots and lots of people suffering alone together. Yeah, and um, what I think is exciting, I'm coming around eventually. A little a, a little bit of a uh, of a path to get there, but uh, the just the idea that this kind of conversation happens mm. and that. That's that sparks lots of other conversations to happen. I mean, I don't think it's just exciting in terms of people with psychiatric conditions being more likely to seek help, which is exciting, mm-hmm. um, or more likely to follow through with their help yeah. w- with with getting help, which is which is also exciting. But I think it changes the fabric of the church. Yes. Mm. Yes. And 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 to me, that's you know to to really be able to not just be. Um, I don't know to, to be to be broken together 
and aspiring together and, um, you know, kind of arms rolled up together is, I mean, that, that's, that is a really exciting thing. And, I, and the advocacy excites me as a psychiatrist, hmm. but the, um, you know, the potential for revolution in, 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 in wow. our community, I think, is, is potentially even more exciting. Now, that may sound a little pie in the sky. Maybe it is, but... We like uh, pie in the sky. <laughs> but, this is, but this is the kind of thing that... that, that this has been a great starting place, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and what an encouraging thing for, for people um, in the church to catch that vision as you're talking about it and to say, yeah, that, I, I can see that happening. I can see us changing the fabric of the church. Um, what, a, what an exciting thing to, to be able to, to lock arms with each one another and find encouragement in that as the church. Yeah. And isn't it interesting and ironic that mm. the church is the place that, that, has the most hope and yet it's the place that we're most afraid to tell people when we're struggling or when we're yes. when we're broken yes, and i yes, can't believe yes, i'm yes, about yes, to yes, quote yes. Brene brown too <laughs> i just i can't believe i'm doing this you might have to edit this out but Brene brown says you know that um shame needs three things to survive it's secrecy secrecy silence and judgment and so when we allow those yes. things to categorize how we're feeling because we're ashamed we don't want to bring it to the light it's secrecy, it's silence, and it's judgment. We feel all those things. Mm, and so yeah. we, we keep it in and we don't want to tell people. And that's the very thing that we need, not only yeah. that we need to start to heal, but also that the people yeah. around us, it's like, it's going to, what's going to be able to break open uh, the light to come through because we see, oh, I'm not alone. You know, you too, yeah. me too. And it, it, it changes, as you said, the fabric of the church. And I think there there is hope and excitement in that. Yeah, yeah and, and very exciting that that you're naming that you're even seeing some of that um, as, as you know, Sue Ann and I are working within the church. It's, it's somehow sometimes difficult for us to to maybe see that as intimately as somebody that's that's um, coming in and a member and is and attending. Um, so just really exciting that you're, you're seeing some of that fabric changing as we speak. Um, oh. Sue Ann, something something that you, sh you shared kind of touched on um, where where I think we can go next is is this idea that sometimes it's hardest to share within the community of the church. It's yeah. hardest to step into this faith um, arena and and share our burdens and share our struggles, even though we are we are called to do that and to bear bear that with one another. For some reason, there's there's a break there, and I think I think that same stigma kind of translates into um, the the conversation of mental health and, and struggling um, with with mental illness. Um, and so so Tom, I don't know um, if if you've seen this, but but even though there has been progress made in in the time since you you know mentioned when you were practicing in Wheaton you saw some of the the stigmas at play there um, there's still some of that that's that stigma towards finding finding treatment and therapy and medication especially in the church um, and in one of um, Tara Best sermons from this series she she mentioned um, and described therapy and medication as um, a means of God's grace that that we um, are being able to experience this gift that God has given us through um, professionals through um, through doctors through people who have done years and years of research and study to provide these opportunities for grace through through therapy and conversations to that end and, and through medication and biological um, ways of, of helping um, our bodies and our minds and our souls um, kind of find relief and, and treatment to, to some of these things that we're we're struggling with. So the question is there is is what are the common aversions that you might see people having towards um, stepping into the journey toward health um, through some of the treatments of, of therapy, counseling, medication? Yeah, what what what, what aversions do you see people having? Uh, a lot of them, and we have we we have a long way to go. I I I, I want to come back to something that, yeah. that Sue M was was saying about how difficult this is in in church and how how ironic that can be. I feel like it's the more public your your faith, the more prominent you are in, 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 in a church, the more people you feel people are looking at you. In mm. some ways, it's even harder than, than, than it would be for everybody else who's walking through the door. Mm. Uh, and you know, there's an opportunity to model in there and to really invite other people in, into the struggle, but that's, it's, it's even harder, that whole you know, silence and shaming and judgment is, you know, and, and then there's a, there can be an overlay, I think, of well, if I'm struggling, is that going to look bad for somebody else who's looking at me and they think I've got it? And they're they're really that that's a that's a powerful and um, and that's a powerful thing. And I, I do think there is a kind of a natural resistance to 
I mean, Ford even called it the resistance, but uh, that's a, also a topic for another day. <laughs> um, but um, there is a natural resistance, I think, to uh, to doing therapy. I think there's a there's a there's a um, a difficult to describe stigma that people have about medications mm. uh, as well. Uh, I think that the, the therapy part is largely a, a kind of a, a stigma against what you know not having not having it together and what's going to happen and mm. what, what and I think I think there's a you know if I really go there into that pain that that thing that happened that thing that I don't talk about that anxiety that that I'm not going to be able to pull myself out of that yeah. like there's yeah. there's some stuff that I mm. uh, that I've been pushing down push, pushing down and and being you know sort of. Uh, you know, distancing myself from yeah. that whole thing that I don't really want to touch for for a long time, and I, I you know, there's a natural fear of not wanting to go there. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, it's understandable. It's like you know, we treat all sorts of vets with PTSD, and um, you know, therapy means re-experiencing the worst thing that's ever happened mm-hmm. in your life, wow. and so uh, hopefully in a very you know thoughtful way, right. in a way that's you know professionally. Um, uh, guided and with you know people alongside you at every step, but it's it's not an easy yeah. it's not an easy thing in that respect. I think the the medic the medication thing is also interesting to me because people often can't articulate it terribly well. Hmm. It's almost like and I, I think there's a resistance uh, that that folks have to taking any kind of medicine in general. Yeah. I mean, it's like, well, even even you know my blood pressure is high, but you know let me try to lower my salt intake yeah. for another month, maybe then. But there's something about taking psychiatric medication that hmm. makes people feel like. It's like some there's there's this kind of odd mystique about it. Like sure. I'm, I'm stepping into the abyss now mm-hmm. that I'm now that I'm becoming a, a psychiatric patient or something like that. And um, you know, and, and that that it, as the as the person who's the the prescriber mm-hmm. uh, of the medication, lots and lots of times, it it's um, um, it, it gives you a sense of. Um, uh, it, 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 when you know that you can help someone to feel better mm. and you can watch them not be able to accept that help because of whatever stigma and, um, you know, sometimes it's not an easy thing to watch. And it's an especially difficult thing to watch when, uh, and this, you know, certainly still happens plenty of times, if the stigma is coming from some belief about so what something somebody in my church said, or what somebody in my church will think, or I'm not spiritual enough, or I just haven't prayed hard enough. Yeah. Uh, and if that's the reason, that's just that's that's just a really gut wrenching thing to to see. I haven't uh, seen as much of that in in what I'm doing now, but it, it it it's it definitely leaves an indelible kind of mark to to see it. Yeah. There there have been, you know, more um, you know, mainstream beliefs within the church that that. Um, have been damaging for people in in this regard. Mainstream teachings that that um, you know I I great gratefully haven't seen much much recently of that that negative um, you know teaching from pulpits around the idea of of mental illness. Um, so that's 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 great, but but it it's there um, and it's yes. and it's damaging to people. Um, I wonder I wonder too because um, there, there's there's also a fine line with with um, medication of of you know, we, we can use it that, that can be helpful. Um, but then, you know, there's, there's a risk of, of, um, abuse or, or using it to, to the point where, um, it's, it's no longer serving. Um, can you speak to, to that, um, in any way? What, where do you see the balance? What, what, um, notes do you have in, in terms of that, that well, I really, um, balance? I really appreciate you teeing it up in that way, because that's one of the things that people most frequently articulate about why they don't want to take medication mm. is that, I'll be addicted. Mm. I don't want to be addicted. I, whatever this is, yeah. I, I just don't want to be addicted to it. And actually, very few medications we prescribe as psychiatrists are addictive. Hmm. Um, and those that are, we have, we're very careful about using. Even much more careful, by the way, than we were uh, when I was coming out of sure. uh, coming out of training. I think uh, uh, things have almost gone so far to the extreme that it, people are hesitant even to prescribe things that would be potentially addictive that that, that are even unlikely to be abused uh, because of the fear of, 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 of them being abused now. But uh, in general, that's a, that's a, it's, a, it's not a common thing. Hmm. Um, it is certainly common that people who are on pain medication can get addicted to pain medication. And, sure. and, and uh, we certainly do prescribe benzodiazepines and other types of medication that are potentially addictive. Um, but most medications we prescribe are uh, are, are just simply not addictive. Hmm. Um, 
I think one of the important things that uh, that people don't really think about when they're thinking about whether or not to take medication is the is the the framework they're kind of used the, the paradigm they're you the question I guess the way I should say this is the question that they're really asking with with should I take medication or not because I think the the question that people usually frame for themselves or that they frame to me will be what about the what are the benefits of this medication and what are the risks of taking this medication you know what are the uh, what, what's the what's the upside? What's the downside? And the real decision is not what are the risks and benefits of the medication. The real qu- question, especially from a risk perspective, is what is the risk of the medication versus what is the risk of the undertreated or untreated disease? Hmm. And those are two entirely different things. Yeah, uh, we don't often think like you know, untreated depression has consequences. Untreated anxiety has consequences. Uh, substance abuse disorders that aren't treated have uh, potentially even life-threatening consequences. All the all all of them can have life-threatening consequences. Yeah. And uh, when we do our sort of calculus of risks and uh, benefits, and and um, we just we often don't really think about the things that are um, we we don't assess the situation as accurately as, as probably should be the case. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. And and I want to even take us a step back for a second. Um, can you can you explain technically, or maybe not technically, but in a way that someone like me, and <laughs> speaking for a friend, um, <laughs> somebody like me- I get can, a lot of that. <laughs> somebody like me can understand what, what is happening when, when a patient takes medication. What's, what's the process? What is the goal of that? Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Uh, no. Having uh, having taught psychopharmacology for more than a decade, I can tell you that having making that a simple uh, uh, me giving a simple explanation for that will not work. Um, I don't know that I was that good at teaching it anyway, but um, uh, because the brain, it turns out, is a really complicated uh, complicated uh, organ. But um, you know, essentially, when uh, pragma- practically speaking. Um, most of the time, what medication does, especially when you're talking about depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. is to reduce symptoms, hmm. uh, and um, not necessarily change things wholesale. Especially not when you're first taking yeah. uh, taking medication. You know, antidepressants take weeks to work, hmm. and um, so there's a there's a kind of you know taking it on faith for a while to see what's going to happen six weeks from now. Um, and having to sort of wait that wait wait that whole thing through, uh, I, I think there I think there is a kind of a mythology around the medication is going to make me different somehow, mm. and they're just they're not that good. <laughs> <laughs> they're really not. Uh, they're, if there they are, were, we'd all be taken. If one, there right? were, yeah, something like that, yeah. And um, you know, it, it, it's really much more that it takes the edge off. If someone has um, you know PTSD and they're um, yeah, PTSD is a good example, actually, of something that medication helps but doesn't necessarily um, get you to the finish line. Mm. Uh, not that there's ever necessarily a finish line for sure. healing, but in terms of remission of symptoms, mm-hmm. um, it will. You know, if you're re-experiencing the, the trauma and you know it's knocking you on your, you know, essentially knocking you out emotionally five hours a day. Uh, it may be that after taking medication, it knocks you on, knocks you out for a couple hours a day, sure. uh, or you know renders you less uh, able to function a, a, as well as you'd like to. And uh, you know similarly, uh, you know if um, if you're feeling depressed, it's not as though you're going to feel undepressed to a week later, or that you're. I think people worry that they're not going to be able to experience the full range of emotions. Mm. Uh, on on medication, and there is there is something to that with so, certain medications. Sure, but uh, when that happens, and when people do feel a little bit more emotionally constricted by the medication they're taking, and again, a lot of medications do not do this, but um, you just talk about it with your psychiatrist, and we go down on the dose. Yeah, it's not really a complicated like. Um, you know, I, I think again, there's a there's this kind of mystique of oh, oh my gosh, what's going to happen, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, it, it's usually a lot like a lot of things that we kind of build up in our minds. It's really not. Uh, I always tell people starting medication. It's a. It, it's a, almost always tell people. I don't tell people this every single time, but you know, it's a it's a date, not a marriage. Let's see how it goes. Sure. And that you're not, you know, you're not beholden necessarily to do this for the long term. But, sure. Um, now there are certain things that that do require being medicated. Period. Like, sure. Like I, I don't think it's ethical to tell someone who is who is bipolar who has bipolar one disorder. 
medications are optional, or you've mm-hmm. just been diagnosed with schizophrenia, medications are optional, or you know this is your sixth episode of depression. Um, you know, I, I feel like in certain cases you have to sort of push a little more yeah. as, as the physician, but most of the time it's it's a little more. Um, there's there's a lot more um, kind of give and take. Uh, yeah. in, and there's always give and take in that discussion, but certainly much, much more uh, in most situations. Yeah. Can I, I can speak into this just as a parent and talk about just yeah. pulling back some of the layers and bringing some of this into light. And my daughter has shared her own journey. And so I don't feel like I'm betraying a confidence, but we went through when she was in high school, her, you know, and she's great, happy student, you know, involved in a lot of things, but she went through a period at her junior year in high school where she got slammed with depression and anxiety, and we're still not exactly sure where it came from, what yeah. happened, but she couldn't go to school. She couldn't get out of bed. She was crying every day. Mm. I, I slept with her every night for months and months, and she was mm. very um, afraid to say she needed help until finally one day she was sitting in the parking lot of the high school calling me from the phone crying, and I said, I'm calling the school psychologist. Like This, this mm-hmm. is not okay anymore. They, they want to help you. That your your school doesn't yeah. want to see you this way. We don't want to see you this way. We're going to get you help. So she hung up the phone. I called. We I drove to the school. We walked wow. her in, and that started a journey of partnering with the school system. Mm-hmm. A, a, uh, we went to a faith based counselor, a psychiatrist, finding the right medicine, finding the right tools, doing the counseling, yeah. doing the hard work, working with the school. It was a long journey. She was terrified to take the medication. We were terrified for her to take the medication, and still we started to learn. And I'm just so thankful for the counselors and the the psychiatrists that we worked Mm -hmm. with and still work with um, to do exactly what you're saying, to walk you through the process, to hold your hand, to try different things, to to help kind of quench the fear and to say, hey, we're going to try this. And we tried lots of different things. Some things didn't work. Some things did. We finally found something that worked for her. But it wasn't, as you said, an overnight fix, but it got her to a place then where she could go to school. Mm. We were seeing pieces of our daughter that we hadn't yeah. seen wow. for months. I mean, the, the stress it put on our family was just mm. enormous. And to see that we had these tools in place, medication and therapy being part of that, that we're able to journey with us and start to lift our family out mm. of that to now where my daughter, you know, I mean, she's doing awesome. You saying like to be able to watch them through that journey and to see the hope and she's still in touch with her psychiatrist and we've reduced the medication and it's not a lifelong thing, but I mean, we had to do the hard work to figure all of that out. And we've said, you know what, if you ever get in a bad place again, now we know what to do. And I think that, you know, it's not so scary because Mm -hmm. now we know what to do. We know not to be scared. We know where we can go. You have your tools in your toolbox, you know, so you know what to do and you know the signs of when it's coming. And it's just Mm -hmm. been a game changer for us. And so I just say that because I appreciate so much what you do and to to validate everything you're saying as a parent who had no idea what I was doing when we stepped into that place. That's really good. Thank you for sharing that, Sue Ann. And I think, I think too, that, that illustrates, um, I mean, obviously a real story um, that that helps give um, language and hope and in a, a, a yeah a, a real picture of what this journey can look like um, for folks. And I think one of the things that we I mean we live in a culture that's so quick fix. I need it now. I need to to you know fix what I'm what I'm feeling. I need to change what I'm doing. And sometimes we we may fall into the trap that therapy or or medication or any other treatment that we're going to for um, for our mental illness is going to provide an immediate, um, fix. Um, but what I'm hearing from your story and what I see in, in stories, um, similar from, from people, it's a, it's not always a, a quick, quick road, but it's a journey towards health. Um, but along the stops of that journey, when you're working with, with mm-hmm. professionals that can, can take your hand and, and walk you through it when you're working with, a, or when you have a, a community of people around you that are supporting you and sitting with you, when the church can serve in that way, in a, in a, in a cool way, um, that journey becomes, becomes, um, one towards health. Um, you can start to see, um, improvement and, and hope and, and yes. progress along yes. the yes. way, yes. 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 Um, yes. that yes. makes it less scary. Just like you're saying, it makes the fear factor diminish and the, the hope factor rise in, mm. in a really cool way. Um, and so, so for those that are, 
on this journey or, or about to be, um, know the, know the reality of it, that it's not always going to be immediate and quick. Um, and just like the, the story of, of the gospel message, God is, God is drawing us towards, um, restoration and healing. He is, he is pulling us there and it doesn't always happen in the timing that we want to, um, but know that that process is good. Um, and that, that there is, there is work, good work being done through that. So, yeah. And I think that's an important message to get out because as you're, you know, it's, it's different going through something a second and third and fourth time than it is the first time. Uh, there, there's some, there's some issues sometimes with going through something the second, third and fourth time too. But the first time I think to be able to hear the message that it may take, may take a few, it may take more than one therapist. It Mm. may take more than one medication, but you know, this, this gets better Yeah, and we're with you through this and we're going to, you know, we're going to figure this out together. But, but just hearing more and more of those stories, not yeah. just the, I took medication, I'm better, right, I went to therapy, I'm better, right. but the... But open know, that story but, up a little the, bit more the, and let's see what that looked like. And right? I think it's yeah. much more common to hear stories like what, what the one that you're talking about, Sue Ann, with, with your daughter and the, you know, I, uh, it's as a, you know, uh, when you, when you, when you watch your child uh, mm. go through something, mm. that, it, it, that's a, that's a, that's a really difficult thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, almost as hard in some ways as having the uh, having the uh, uh, having the depression yourself. Yeah, yeah. And they're both helpless helpless places helpless. to be. Yeah. yeah, you feel so helpless. That's the word. Mm-hmm. That is really the word. Definitely. Well, we are coming to a close, but I want to I, I want to ask you um, two more things. First of all, um, we should have asked this at the top, so um, we'll give you a chance to speak into it now. And I think for those of you listening, you've heard. Um, uh, you've heard Tom's heart and and where he comes from um, as somebody who who is striving to to walk in step with Jesus every day. Um, but Tom, would you would you share with us a little bit of how does your faith um, help influence your your perspective on these treatments of therapy of medication? And and maybe another way of asking that is to use Terabas' phrase from um, the sermon the other week of how have you seen those types of tools serve as a means of God's grace as a gift um, of of God's grace. Um, I was thinking about that a little bit before, before we went on and how, how I would answer and now I'm, we'll see, I guess, but, um, <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, as you know, we think of ourselves as a, you know, Christian, this Christian, that Christian, this occupation, Christian parent, Christian, you know, as part of the identifying, you know, um, uh, you know, being, uh, being a believer is the context of everything, hmm. you know, it, it's not just. You know, uh, and I, I feel like it it, it. it it in some ways it's such a broad thing that I don't even really think of it as specific. How it's specific to psychiatry versus everything mm. everything else, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I I think it um, for me anyway, and this is maybe the way I'd answer it more personally than than kind of as a maybe I don't know how generalizable this is, but sure. um, you know, we in uh, mental health field talk a lot about the self. And I'm, I don't really believe in the self so much. I believe in the soul, hmm. and it it sort of gives a, a kind of gives a, a depth to the story. I think that is, um, um, I, I don't know, helps helps keep it helps to keep bringing me back, and I think it brings other people back who who love the work. Hmm. Um, that it's um, to be able to um, see. Um, uh, for just in, in, a, in, a, in a tiny way, you know, uh, the, this this soul and what this soul is going through, and to be able to kind mm. of walk with that person in a way that is, in, it's in some ways coming alongside, in some ways it's a little bit directive. But, um, and I don't know that that's a that's a good answer, but I I, I feel like it, um, you know, it, it's um, maybe it's a little bit like asking a fish about the water or something. But I, <laughs> but I, uh, yeah. No, that's, that's great. I would say. Yeah, I appreciate that that answer. Um, and the the second thing I wanted to ask you is, um, if there's somebody listening right now that that is experiencing some of that indecision or the pressure or the stigmas or the you know the difficulty of of um, moving towards treatment or not or or choosing therapy or or medication or both or they're just in that space where where they're they're experiencing mental illness illness and they're also experiencing the the you know what could be a crushing indecision or or difficulty of taking that that next step um, to find help what what if any words do you have to to share with them what what thoughts do you have to share what advice um, what might you say to them 
you know, it, it, it's, it, it's maybe redundant to things we've, we've said already, sure. or, and certainly redundant to something that uh, you hear a lot, but you're not alone. Mm. Mm. Uh, you're not alone, you're not alone, you're not alone, and you're not alone, and you're going to feel alone, but you're not alone, hmm. and you're not alone, and you're not alone. And by the way, you're not alone. Um, and I, I was thinking about this um, earlier from one of the times I was in therapy, hmm. and um, just um, there's a Sandra McCracken song, um, and there's a, there's a line, it's, the song is called Shelter, I think. Um, and the, the line is, in the arms of a good father, you can go into the deep water, mm. and uh, and that's we have a good father. Yeah. You can go into the deep water, and you'll come out okay. Wow, so good. what a way to to end. Um, thank you mm. for that, Tom. Friends, if you if you are hearing this um, and you have you have questions, we as the church we want to be a resource for you as well. Feel free to reach out to us with with any of your questions. We can help point you to professionals. We can help point you to communities. We can help point you um, to to find more answers in in any way you can. Um, Tom, we are so grateful for you being here, for being a part of our congregation, um, for the for the work you're doing. Um, so so thank you so much for for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and and Sue Ann, as always, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate you. Thanks for having having me and Tom. Thanks again for all the great work you do. It's really just a blessing to sit here with you. Well, ditto. And now over to our friend, Pastor Eric Haskins, as he offers us a spiritual practice that can serve as a lifeline for all of us. A few months ago, I was at a breakfast with Tom, actually, sharing with him at that point what initially um, were the beginning ideas that the teaching team was crafting on this series on mental health. Uh, I was asking for his feedback, his wisdom, uh, any suggestions he might have for us. One of the ideas that stayed with me and has perhaps become a foundational element to this series is the reminder we just heard from Tom Scher, where he said, you are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. And as I think to that breakfast with Tom, and as I continue to reflect on this reality that we are not alone in our struggle, our angst, our doubts, our fears, and anxieties, my heart and mind are drawn to the spiritual practice of lament. Now, it's interesting, maybe even comforting to note, that the largest type of psalms in the scriptures that were part of Israel's praise and, and, and worship, remember, psalms are Israel's prayer book. They're Israel's worship book. They're actually psalms of lament. A lamentation or a lament is a prayer working through your pain. And when we, when we hurt physically, we cry out in pain, don't we? And when our hearts and our souls ache, when our hearts and our souls are hurting, we cry out and lament. And types of laments include concerns over uh, individual or community's own thoughts and actions. And these are types of laments from the scriptures. Uh, concerns with the actions of an enemy or prevailing attitude. Uh, concerns with God's action or our perceived uh, perception of God's inaction. Their cries of despair and anger, protests, fear, and doubt. Now, in general, most Psalms of lament follow a specific structure. Uh, and the structure, uh, I'm going to break that down for you here using Psalm 13. So if you have a Bible or if you have your phone in your hand or nearby, pick that up and uh, go to your favorite Bible app and look up Psalm 13. And so uh, Psalms of lament, they start out with an address or an introductory cry where you identify God is who you're speaking to. So in Psalm 13, verse one, O Lord, how long will you forgive me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? And then the, the monk will go on to actually stating kind of what we just heard, the complaint or lament. And in verse 2, the, this particular psalm goes on to say, How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? 
So here in Psalm 13, the psalmist is saying, this is what my issue is. This is my complaint, God. Uh, When is this relief going to come? How long am I going to feel like this? And then the laments traditionally go through a prayer of deliverance. So they're actually praying to God, asking for him to relieve the suffering. In verse 3 of Psalm 13, Turn and answer me, O Lord, my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. And there, the fourth movement of a psalm of lament is confession. It's a confession of trust, a trust in God. Verse 5 of Psalm 13. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. And then traditionally Psalms uh, of lament end with praise and this recognition of for God's goodness and the many blessings. Verse six, I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Now, I, I admit At times, laments can be hard to engage with. But each time I pause and I reflect on the Psalms of Lament, I'm reminded that I'm not alone in these feelings that are darkening my soul. More than that, knowing that they are part of the scriptures is to me, I see it as an invitation to me to express these feelings in appropriate ways to the community of faith and actually an invitation that God's okay with it for me to share these hard words, these hard thoughts, these hard feelings with God himself. And as Sue Ann reminded us, far too often we sit to the detriment of ourselves in secrecy, in silence, and in judgment. A lament breaks through the secrecy as we are no longer silent, but we are sharing with God and the larger community through this practice and find out we are not alone and not judged, but invited and loved and encouraged to move towards God with our laments in hand. To help us practice this lifeline of lament, uh, on this episode's webpage, you can find a practice guide to craft your own lament. Now, as you do, I hope and pray you will allow it to be the lifeline the Spirit of God has intended to be through the ages. Enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And a special thanks to Dr. Tom Nutter, Sue Ann Camfield, and Pastor Eric Haskins for all the wisdom and truth that they shared with us today. Our prayer, as always, is that this last hour has been fruitful for you in your journey of faith toward mental health. We look forward to seeing you next time on Lifelines, continuing the conversation.